All right, so welcome to the third installment. Let's try that again. Third installment of Objectivist Q&A. So first question came in, what do you make of the fact that Leonard Peikoff apparently donated $250 in February, the February primary election to the Trump Make America Great Committee? Well, Leonard hasn't made his reasons public. He hasn't commented on at all, even to acknowledge it. And I certainly haven't talked about it with him privately, so I don't know his reasons. And I don't think that you can draw a conclusion about a person contributing money to one of the two major presidential candidates, particularly in a primary, without knowing their reasons. So I have no opinion of it. And I think anybody who does comment, either positively or negatively, they're, um, without further information, they're just using this as fodder for their own agenda and their own pre-existing views, whether it's of Leonard or Trump or the Ayn Rand Institute or objectivists in general. And to be honest, I find the whole thing a little bit creepy. Like, I know this was public information and, you know, you're free to look it up. But to imagine that somebody sat down at their computer and started typing in the names of strangers or, you know, to hunt down what these people are, what causes these people are contributing to, like, that's the best thing you have to do in life. I mean, don't be that person. Rodrigo asks, how is it in your self-interest to respect other people's property rights, particularly in cases where you steal something and no one ever finds out about it? Uh, all right, a lot to say in this one, and I have a lot of notes because I think it's a... a, a complex topic. Um, the, the, I mean, the starting point, though, is like, you can't just stipulate that you won't get caught, that you'll get away with it, right? You have no clue if you take something. Are there cameras hidden around? Are there people that I'm not noticing coming by? Am I at the place in a way where nobody else had access to this and by process of elimination, they can prove that I can did it, that, that I did it. Am I going to just randomly by accident get stopped by the police on my way home? You know, it could be for something as dumb as a taillight that just happened to go out and they find this property on me. Um, the, the whole setup is like, you don't really know that you can get away with it. And like, that's at one level, the answer, which is it's very straightforward that you res it's in your interest to respect property rights because other people will try to stop you. They're, they'll use their rationality to stop you, to catch you, and to punish you, and to ostracize you. And that's a pretty big price to pay. You don't want to be in the other end of that. But let's go deeper. Now, I think that really, in, in, in many ways, should be the whole of the argument. But I think there's things to explore below it. So one thing is just to get clear on exactly what the objection is, because there's really two potential, two, I'm really bad with uh, numbers and hands today. There's really two potential objections going on here. So one of them is you could be saying that why is respecting other people's property the right principle to follow? So that's one thing you could be asking about. The other is why should I adhere to principles at all? Shouldn't I violate them 
whenever I judge it to be in my interest, whenever I think I can get something and get away with it. And let's start with the second, because I think that's actually what's really driving this question. So I indicated that, you know, the objectivist view is we need principles because we can't just look at a situation and, and weigh all of the consequences across the whole of our life, direct and indirect, just by guessing or by just mentally projecting. The only way we can weigh long-term consequences is through principles. That's our means of projecting the long range. And it's not just that you need principles to assess the means like uh, of, of obtaining a value. It's not just like you need principles to say, okay, money is good, but should I get it through stealing or not stealing? You need principles to, um, to assess how valuable something is in the first place. Is this money that we're talking about good for me? That is not obvious. People treat it as obvious, but it's not obvious. And I get why they do that, right? Like on one level, it seems obvious. I need stuff. Stuff is good for my life, all else being equal. And this money will buy stuff, right? So why do I say that principles are vital here? And to answer that question, um, you have to understand that principles, they're not rules exactly. They're not rules for what's the best way to get stuff. They are, um, they're really our way of breaking into actionable guidance, the components of a whole that is in reality a total kind of life. So let me explain that a little bit. So when we approach morality, the question we're really asking is not primarily what rules to follow or what to do when a trolley's coming or something like that. What we're asking is what kind of life do I want to live and what kind of person do I want to be? And this is why Ayn Rand thinks our interest or awareness of morality and the root of developing a healthy attitude towards morality starts with art and in particular literature. That is what literature lets us do is it projects different kinds of lives that we could live through different kinds of characters. It gives us a vision of the best and the worst and, and it allows us to project those and in effect morality is choosing what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to live? Which of those or which of any other way of living can I project? Is it that I'm striving to realize in the totality of my life? So when you're at the level of thinking about morality, your starting point is not thinking about a particular kind of action, but a whole kind of life. You know, do I want to live a life of reason and creation or of whims and predation? That's one sort of alternative that you face. And there's no such answer as, well, it's a little bit of both. A life of whims and predation is precisely the life where you say, yeah, most of the time I'll tell the truth. Most of the time I might even go to work and pay the bills and everything. But every once in a while, I'll try to get away with something. Objectivism's view is precisely that the good is the consistent and the evil is the consistent. It's living by the seat of your pants, by this feels right at the time, uh, rather than by principles. So the, um, there's no way then to answer the question, like, what should I do in this situation? Absent this higher level question of what do I want? And what kind of person do I want to be? You can't 
I keep stressing this, but I really want to hammer this home. You can't just take one action and say, what are the likely consequences? If you're interested in morality, the starting point is, do I want to live a Rourke-ish life or an Iago-ish life or a Walter White-ish life? And then you need principles. What principles are doing is in effect breaking down into actionable guides, uh, ways in which you can select your own personal values and, your, and make your own personal choices in the context of your own life choices and modes of action that are consistent or add up to a Rourkeish life, let's say. So once we get to the level of even thinking morally, the question can't be, should I steal it if I can get away with it? The right question is, um, th that question rather, it, that's not asking what morality to follow. It's really a question of, should I live by any morality at all? Should I live by principles or should I just go by the seat of my pants, principles be damned? Okay, so let's say then that we want to live a moral life. We want to live by principles. We recognize that we can't achieve what we want to achieve. We can't achieve the best life possible through the, by living through the seat of our pants. Why is it or is it true that respecting property rights is the right principle? And the most relevant issue here is how do we gain values from other people? And if you really think about it, the, the core values that we gain from people, relationships, knowledge, trade, these come from people's rationality and their productivity, and we access them through our rationality and productivity via voluntary trade, both spiritual and material. And in effect, the choices do I want that and all the values that come from that or do I want to throw it all away and treat other people like animals and have them treat me like an animal and so when you think of the scale of values that you get from rationality and productivity and trade no amount of money that cuts you off from that ongoing interaction with people can be worth it it's pure loss and so, like, the, you know, there's no money in the world that in effect says, like, yeah, no decent people will want to deal with me, but I got 25 pairs of Yeezys. It just, the, there's no calculation which that's going to make sense. Um, and I, I want to highlight or underline this point that, like, that's true even if you never get caught. Because, as I said before, you don't know if you're going to get away with your crime, but what you do know is that if you want to keep the charade going, you have, you've surrendered your control over your life. You're committing yourself to telling whatever lie is necessary in the moment to cover your, up your crime and then lies to cover up those lies. And so you don't know going in, who am I going to have to lie to? And you don't know what those lies will commit you to and how they'll box you in and what they'll cut you off from pursuing. You don't know who you'll have to avoid talking to or seeing. You'll, I mean, maybe you've even had this experience, maybe at least as a kid, where, you know, every time your parent or maybe later on your girlfriend or boyfriend or your boss says like, hey, we need to talk, your mind instantly goes to, oh, that bad thing I did that they don't know about. And is this going to be it? And in effect, imagine living your life trapped in that feeling, um, that's that's what a criminal voluntarily traps themselves in rather than living a creative life where they benefit from other people's rationality. And so their whole life is actually feeling out of control because they literally are out of control. They're being controlled by the ignorance and ultimately 
the perceptiveness of other people. And that's why objectivists say that ultimately what you end up in by this process of trying to protect the lie is an all-out war with reality. Like that sounds very abstract and unrelatable, but if you really take seriously what kind of path you're on where there's a certain fact out there that if discovered would be detrimental and devastating to you, and you're going to cover it up at all costs, the only way to cover it up is by further and further putting yourself in conflict with the facts. And that snowballs, that escalates. And I mean, we see that in real life and in art. You know, that is really the story of Breaking Bad, right? It's basically you just want to, you, you know, you're, you're a person who's lived a seemingly decent life and you're going to commit, all right, I'm just going to go make a little bit of money doing this thing that not really going to hurt anybody. And yet in order to continue on that course, you're forced to escalate into more and more evil actions and more and more things in the world become a threat to you. So the, the point is that if you commit yourself to violating property rights, you're throwing away not just everyone else's rationality and productivity, you're throwing away first and foremost yours. Now, this is actually a little bit of an artificial way to talk about it because the one thing I've mostly left out is psychology. And psychologically, there's no such thing as a fully rational person who just decides to steal and then it destroys their life. For an adult to get to the state of stealing, you've already built up a twisted series of motivations and rationalizations that make it possible for you to even consider that course. For example, precisely not trying to think through the consequences of your actions, even without principles, even just trying to project 10 steps ahead, that is not what criminals do. Criminals are notoriously impulsive not calculating. And most crimes are not, how do I cleverly get away with stealing a million dollars? They're mostly about, hey, there's a purse, I'm going to grab it, and you know maybe I come away with $30. And most of these impulses, I think it's important to keep in mind, are not really about things. It's about feeling a certain way for yourself. I got away with something. I'm more clever. I have power over other people. A criminal is, is so neurotic that they're constantly obsessing about like, other people's respect for them, respect that is going to substitute for the respect they don't actually have for themselves. And that's the real payoff in the crime, not the thing they get from the crime, which usually they think, what the hell is this about? This is not like it's gone in 10 minutes. It's really the payoff for them is the crime itself. It's when they pull the gun. It's that's when they're in charge. It's when they break into your house at night. They're now God. It's when, you know, a man rapes a woman. It's he controls her like an animal or an object and sets the terms. Or how about this rationalization? I can get away with it because I'm smarter than everybody else. Like this is a real recurrent theme among criminals. It's this idea that like I am so clever and so manipulative that nobody's going to get the drop on me. And jails are filled with people who are so clever and so manipulative that nobody's going to get the drop on them. Or how about this rationalization? Uh, And Bernie Madoff, the fraudster, continues to spin this if you listen to his jail interviews. I didn't really hurt anybody, and if I did, they deserve it. So there's just these layers of rationalization and impulsiveness and a deep irrationality that characterizes actual criminals. And my point isn't that you steal once and become that kind of person. It's It's that... the people who are re- raising this objection, should I steal once, they aren't taking seriously what kind of person you actually already have to be in order to act in that knowledge.
Like there is no such thing as you've cultivated the character of a Howard Rourke and then it's, oh, here's $20 that I can get away. Would that be a value? Like that's just so foreign and incredible and bizarre that nobody actually behaves that way. It takes deep, sustained evasions over time to reach the stage of being a criminal. And I'm stressing this because the whole plausibility of the why can't I do X if I can get away with it, it comes from treating ideas as a game and not taking seriously, I'm really going to live by what I think is true. 99.99% of the time when a person's asking this, they have no intention of actually stealing. And instead of asking themselves, well, why would I not do that? They are really focusing on words and arguments and thinking like, could I defend this in a debate? And I mean, that's, that's a fine thing to ask. But the first primary question is, what would this idea mean to live by? And if I find myself saying to hell, I would never live by this. Why? What's going on there? What are the facts that give rise to that resistance? And like, you know, this is, I mean, I've been there, I've made this mistake, but this is something Ayn Rand really stresses in philosophic detection. Like, it, think philosophically and think clearly. You always have to be in the premise of taking ideas seriously, which means I am going to live by this. And therefore, what would it mean to live by this? Okay, there was a lot here, so let's go ahead and summarize. The question of whether to respect uh, property rights, if you can get away with it, is really primarily not a question about property rights. It's a question about whether we need morality at all. And morality is primarily about what kind of life that a person wants to live. And the basic choice is, do I want to live, say, you know, the life of a Howard work, or do I want to live by the seat of my pants, doing whatever feels right in the moment? And if I want to be Howard Rourke, in the sense of, you know, I'm going to have my own unique personal course of life and my own unique values, my own unique career. But I want that strong sense of purpose, the serenity, the harmony between all my actions and ideas and values. If I want to achieve the things I want, I need principles. And among those principles is dealing with others through reason and productivity and trade rather than through exploitation. And if I try to live through exploitation, I'm not going to get the benefits of other people's rationality and productivity. Instead, I'll have that turned against me to stop me from harming them. And so any concrete value that clashes with this kind of life that I want to live isn't really genuinely a value because it means throwing out the whole infrastructure of values that constitute my aim, which is, you know, you know, a million dollars or a billion dollars, like that can buy me anything except the one thing I'm genuinely after, which is my vision of the best life. The actual criminal is a person who says to hell with all this thinking and to hell with striving towards a long range vision of the best possible life. It's a person who's living moment to moment, mostly in order to escape fear and self-loathing and in order to gratify these stray urges that he has no way of assessing and rationalizing them with self-deceptions that are multiplying the self-destructive course that he's on. So hope that's clear. Let's move on. Uh,
I watch a lot of Ayn Rand campus, so I donate $5 a month to ARI. I love Leonard Peikoff, Edwin Locke, Harry Binswanger, and Yaron Brook. I think the current policy of the Institute is bad and that some of the intellectuals it chose as its spokesmen are bad. How do I criticize it without being an attack? Um, so first of all, I do think you should criticize. Uh, like, And I think that disagreement and criticism is healthy, and I would like to see more of it. But let me distinguish that from the thing that there is a lot of, which is, in effect, sniping and unconstructive criticism that comes from hostility. And this is particularly bad online, and I don't think that is healthy. So here are some quick thoughts on how to give constructive criticism. And I say the first thing is um, express the shared values with the people you're criticizing. Like, I like how you ask the question. You say, in effect, I value objectivism, I value the Ayn Rand Institute, um, and I want the organization to be as good as possible. And many criticisms, as I indicated, are in bad faith. And your goal, you uh, like their goal is to lower the status of the people and organizations they're criticizing. And like that's fine if you think it's a bad organization, but that's not what I think you're talking about. Um, and I think what you need to do is make it clear that that's not what you're doing. And so that's reinforcing our shared values before you give the criticism. Second, I would say make the criticisms as specific as possible. Like if you say Bert's no good because he doesn't understand objectivism, like that may be true, but it's not going to be convincing to anybody, certainly not Bert, but most other people. Like if you contrast that with like, you know, Bert speaks about education, but as, you know, I'm a specialist in the history of education and I think he gets the facts wrong and here's three clear-cut examples, you can see that that is going to be a way more powerful, way more useful than just sort of these very general criticisms. And, you know, some assessments are harder to make that clear-cut, like Ernie lacks charisma. All right. But even there, I think you can make it more specific. You can try to articulate some of the reasons or aspects in which Ernie lacks charisma, right? Like he speaks in a monotone. He never shares any personal stories or anecdotes. Like he doesn't have a sense of humor. He comes off as just bitter and angry and, uh, you know, um, really turns people off in these ways. The third is, as a general rule, delimited criticisms are better than global criticisms. So sometimes you think just a person is bad globally uh, and there's no rule against making a case like that. But I almost always prefer very targeted criticisms where like, you know, instead of saying this person doesn't understand objectivism or this person is a bad speaker, uh, I want to say something like, this argument they gave is a mess for these reasons, or this speech was not good for these reasons. And if you think about your goal, which is get people to improve and convince them th that to share your view, then if, the, if you're giving specific, narrow feedback, that's something that's more actionable. It's something we can do something with. And if I have... It, and, and so that's even if you do have this global view, it's not that you're lying and denying that you have a wider negative evaluation, but part of what you're thinking of is, look, I'm trying to convince people, and if I have a very clear-cut, delimited criticism, 
that's something I can convince people of, even if they have a generally positive view of this person. And if I just say this guy is bad, they'll say, well, like, hey, give me examples. And now we have a sprawling discussion where I'm giving 10 things and trying to say that they're bad. And then they're, the other person saying, well, what about the pro there's problems with the 10 things that you pointed out? Here's 10 potentially good things. It just becomes a sprawling mess. And you had to have seen this happen online because it does all the time. And you can really short circuit that by being very specific, very narrow, very targeted. And part of what happens is if we have a culture of narrow targeted criticism, then it becomes clear over time who's doing consistently poor work and who's consistently not good. And, uh, you know, people will make that assessment for themselves, but you're helping give them the concretes to draw the abstraction rather than giving them the, the abstraction and trying to funnel in some, con some concretes to it. Fourth, and maybe this is most important, take seriously the context of who you're communicating the criticism to. So first of all, they don't know who you are, let's assume. Um, and so criticism from just some random person is not that valuable and not that interesting. Sometimes it'll draw your attention to something, particularly if it's very specific and stands on its own merit. Uh, you know, if somebody says, hey, you made a typo, I made a typo. If somebody says, hey, you, got, you said this, but here's a, a reference that shows the facts are otherwise, cool, then the standing is not that important. But particularly, the more global, the more non-obvious the error you're trying to draw attention to, the, the fact that we don't know who you are, um, that is going to undermine how impactful your criticism is. And you just have to be aware of that. And, you know, one, the, the more that you have skin in the game, the more you've established a reputation as somebody knowledgeable, thoughtful, who's doing things to advance objectivism, um, the more that you have, the more that you'll have standing in your criticisms that are not so clear cut and obvious will be taken seriously. The other part of acknowledging the context of the other person is that you might not have all of the context necessary to know what's relevant in an issue. Like if you're criticizing an organization, you almost certainly don't know things like the history of what they've tried, their resources, their pressures, their constraints, their incentives, their plans for the future. And that doesn't mean that you have to remain silent. But even if you just say, look, I know, I don't know the full situation. I'm an outsider. Here's what I do see as an outsider. That can be valuable. And it, it at least makes it easier for the person to take in what you're saying and harder for them to dismiss it because you're being objective about like, based on the evidence available to me, this is what I think, uh, versus taking this, the assumption that you really know what's going on. Cause as somebody who's worked in many of these organizations and behind the scenes with many of these people, it is super hard for outsiders to know what the real situation is. Um, and again, it, it doesn't mean that you have to remain just skeptical and agnostic. You just have to be very specific and acknowledge, hey, maybe I'm just completely wrong about this. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I welcome any information I don't have. So, again, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from voicing their criticisms and opinions. I'm trying to encourage it, but I'm trying to encourage it in a way that I think will be constructive. And part of what we have to keep in mind is that the people who are out there trying to promote objectivism are doing something super hard. It is a hard philosophy to learn because it's so alien from the philosophy that's, that we all grow up with. 
it's a hard battle to fight because it's asking for deep fundamental change in people's deepest convictions. And it is uh, challenging to do because you face just a lot of pressures and even the best people who receive the most kind of recognition from the culture of which there's only a handful, um, they are far underappreciated. And so it's just good to know that going in and not take for granted that there are people who've devoted their lives to fighting for good ideas. Next question. Can a person think only objectively? I mean, don't we sometimes need to think subjectively? So we need to be really clear in our definitions here. In the culture, objectivity is often equated with being impersonal and detached, and subjective is equated with being personally invested in something. Um, the, the, the existence of this computer right here, people would say, okay, that's an objective fact. It's something that anybody in a room can see, but that this computer is beautifully designed. It's, a, it's an apple. Um, or even that it feels hot right now. These would be considered subjective since, you know, somebody who just came in from the kitchen might, you know, uh, where it's hot, might say this computer doesn't feel so hot. Um, but that's not how objectivism uses these terms. Objectivity, in Ayn Rand's view, is a method. It's a self-consciously, it, it's, it means self-consciously guiding your thinking by logic. And what subjectivism is, in our view, is throwing out that and saying, to hell with logic, I'm just going to go according to my feelings. And so, in objectivism's view, anytime we're pursuing knowledge or values, we should be thinking, which means we should be thinking logically, which means we should be thinking objectively. But that doesn't mean impersonally. You can be completely objective even about what your preferences are. Like you can be objective about the fact that I love blonde, curvy women, or I like Tarantino's dialogue, or I hate Tarantino's choice of subjects. To be objective about your preferences isn't to prove that everyone should have them, but to identify the relevant facts about them and about you that justify those and support those preferences. So for example, here would be a non-objective preference. I don't like Jews because they're dishonest. That's non-objective because dishonesty isn't some feature inherent in people because of their DNA or background. It's a volitional trait. And so all you're doing is stereotyping. Your preference is based on something that's irrational about the object you're judging. Or take the other side. I want to be a doctor because people will admire me. That's non-objective because that's not the type of motive a person should act on. That's second-handed. Or take a different version of the same error, which is I want to be a doctor because I enjoy the work. Like that might be true, but you need to dig at least one level deeper of, well, why do I have that feeling? Why do I enjoy it? And so it might be like, I like using science that help people solve vital problems. And you could dig even deeper than that. And I think like over the course of your life, you should. But if a person at least had that much of an explanation, this is why I want to be a doctor, I would say that all else being equal, it sounds like they're being objective about their preferences. So the basic answer is, insofar as you're thinking, you should be thinking objectively, including about your personal preferences. So this is a question from Mike. 
My brother is so close to loving Ayn Rand, but he's gay and feels very hurt by what she said about homosexuality in the past. How do I better explain to him that that shouldn't be a deal breaker for him? Um, and I don't have the Ayn Rand's quote about that at hand, but to my knowledge, she only spoke about it once, and it was that she thought it was bad and possibly even immoral, or at least it came from immoral premises. Uh, I don't. I, I hesitate even to say this because I don't want to put words in her mouth. You can you can look it up online, um, and I mean, my view is first of all, I definitely understand being hurt, like if somebody you respect or somebody you potentially respect uh, is saying something, you know, negative about something that's core of who you are, like that's painful. So I'm going to give some thoughts that may be helpful in this sort of situation. But at the end of the day, I think there's people who like, they're going to shut down over something like that. And I have a lot of empathy with it. Like life is short. And why should I spend time studying somebody who's going to tell me how to live when they've said one of my deepest values, you know, my, my approach to romance is fundamentally bad. Um, so that's how I would start just with deep empathy and trying to understand how Ayn Rand's comments made them feel and why, but I would also respect them enough to push them a little bit. So for example, I mean, it's a real question that you can ask from a loving place. Like, look, if Einstein said cruel things about homosexuality, would you still agree with physics? And the point is that philosophy properly done is a science. And so it's truth or falsehood doesn't depend on every idea that the originator of the philosophy or every opinion the originator of the philosophy happen to have. The other point I would push on is that like objectivism can be really vital for you because the more that you're outside the mainstream in certain respects, the more you have a vested interest in freedom and in a philosophy that upholds independent thinking and independent judgment. And then if you think about that religion is really the most major source of anti-homosexuality, uh, the, um, there's, you know, here's a morality that's saying that... Um, the purpose, the basic purpose of sex is enjoyment, that it's not about procreation and that you're not doing something immoral if you're pursuing sex for pleasure. On the contrary, you're doing something very moral. And so, you know, that's how I think about it is empathy plus respectful questioning. Now that said, I don't agree with the attitude one often hears that people hear this quote from Ayn Rand, they go, oh, that was just the prejudice of her times. Like, here is somebody who stood against many of the biggest prejudice of her time and of thousands of years before that. And so, to just ascribe reasons to her views, good or bad, that is, I think, off the table. Um, like, my attitude would be, well, I want us to understand her reasoning. And unfortunately, I don't think that we know much about her reasoning, if anything, about her reasoning regarding homosexuality. So I certainly don't know her reasoning. And so my attitude is, like, I don't want to know what views she held, per se. I want to know why she held the views that she held. And I don't know that in this case. What I do know is I knew the reasons for the views I hold, which aren't aligned with her conclusion, at least the conclusion that she stated publicly. I've heard uh, people say that, you know, later in her life or in her final years, she had shifting opinions. I just don't know. So here's another way of thinking about it. I'm just not too interested in what Ayn Rand thought, absent knowing why she thought it, because she's not an oracle. 
She's an interesting thinker that I deeply admire and owe an incredible debt to and learn from every time that I explore how she thinks about an issue. But the mere fact that she had an opinion of something, it has virtually no standing in my mind, and I don't think it should have a standing in your mind. All right, so that's it for this round. Uh, I have a couple more, but this is running long already, so I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you next time.